Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. With me is my co-host, Susan Fox. Up, up, and away! And today we're talking to Fran Wilde, the author of the new book coming out from Tor this October, I think. And it's September called, 1st. September 1st, and it's called Updraft. Welcome to the show. The sooner the better, you. I say. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, t- as of t- right now, it is five days and 18 hours. Oh, boy. It's getting to the exciting part. <laughs> <laughs> this book was... Oh, I... You just drop us right in the middle of it. You know, from page one, it's like, bam, drop us right in the, in the middle of the world and things get rolling from there. And, uh, you don't wait until like page 10 for the, for the hook or whatever it is. It just goes. Nope. Bob gets eaten on page two. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is a book I am going to shove under certain other writers' faces going, Ooh, I have to spend the first half of a book world building. Uh uh-uh. uh. Oh, shoot the sheriff! Explain the town <laughs> later. Yeah, I mean you you uh, you wasted absolutely no time getting started. The book is about what? Well, I I could st- I could tell it because I've read the entire book, which is uh, usually I read a few chapters for these. Yeah, interviews, talk show hosts one, don't always do that. Yeah, they, <laughs> yeah oh we, my gosh, well that's great. You know, but we don't always talk show hosts don't always do that, and I don't always read the entire book. But this one I did because I could not put it down. And you are responsible for a good many hours of lost sleep over the last couple of days. That is that is the thing <laughs> authors love to hear most. <laughs> We are the stealers of sleep. Oh, yes. Uh, and and we thank you for it. And in this case, it's for good reason. Updraft <laughs> is uh, an amazing world, and it's an amazing story. Uh, the vocabulary is, is, you know, solidly in the YA range. There's not a lot of funny words for something that is obviously an extra, extraterrestrial adventure. Well, I, um, I, have, I have a career as a science writer. Mm-hmm. And I, I used to write um, articles for the Whiting School of Engineering at Johns Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And what I learned there and what I learned um, prior to that with some other clients where I was writing about technology is um, it's, it's if you are trying to convey complicated meaning using beautiful language that is not overly complex usually does the job best. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. 
Well, this world is particularly beautiful. And let me read, I'm just, and I rarely do this as well, but I'm going to read the liner note. Okay. Can I make um, one one note? It's not going to be shelved as YA. It's going to be shelved in the adult section. Okay. Um, but the, the is, vocabulary wasn't complicated. Very, Everyone very can readable. Enjoy it. Yes, everybody can read it. it yeah, and, I, and I hope they do. Well, one of the things that separates YA from adult books is that uh, young adult books tend to have simplified character lists, you mm-hmm. know, character rosters, and uh, you have a very rich, complex interweave of characters, and everybody's done something to somebody. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and might do it again. And might do it again. Well, except for the dead ones, you know. Well, we have well. spoilers. Well, you know, there's always dead people in books. But here's but here's here are the liner notes. Welcome to a world of wind and bone, songs and silence, betrayal and courage. Kirit Densira has been eager to win her wings from the city and fly as a traitor, serving her beloved home tower and exploring the skies far beyond what she has known. But when Kirit inadvertently breaks tower law, she must face the singers, the severe and secretive governing body. The singers offer her a way out from the harsh circumstances of law's break. To prove her obedience, she must join them. In an attempt to save her family and tower from the punishing censure, Kirit will have to give up her dreams of flight and leave behind everything she has ever known. Instead, she throws herself into the dangerous training at the spire, the tallest, most forbidding tower deep in the heart of the city. And as Kirit grows in knowledge and power, she starts to uncover the depths of spire secrets. Now, Kirit has begun to doubt the unassailable laws of her world, setting in motion a chain of events that will lead to a haunting choice and may well change the city forever, if it isn't destroyed outright. And that, I mean, that that really sets the stage. That hooks you right in. <laughs> it hooks you right in, and, and uh, I, I love the cover of the book, although... Uh, I, I think the the illustrator got most of the wings right, but not all of it. Mm. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's. I think the illustrator is amazing. His name is Stefan Martinier, uh-huh. and he has done a number of um, covers for Tor. He's worked for a, a range of places, including, I think, Disney. Mm-hmm. And um, the way he depicted the towers was sort of. The minute I saw it, I thought, "Oh my gosh, those are really creepy and spooky." And I went back mm-hmm. and read, and yep, those are that that works for me. Um, I think that he got the the dynamics the, the dynamics of flight in the city, um, and and there are already several different interpretations of what the wings might look like. And mm-hmm. I think that he's you know his rendering is absolutely perfect for the cover of the book. But um, I'm starting to collect more of them as people send them to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the head of tours art department, the creative director Irene Gallo, took updraft to her um, master of illustration workshop in June, 
and let some of the students have at it. And they sent me some of the drawings that they did or watercolors or um, there's one in um, all sorts of sepia tones and there's one that's um, almost an anime. They're really fantastic. So I'm, I love seeing all the different versions. So if you want to draw what you think the wings look like, please, uh, please send them my way. <laughs> I'd love to see it as a, you know, a Japanese, a Japanese pen and ink. Oh my gosh, that would be gorgeous. Really just the spires as almost pagodas, you know? Yes. Yeah. Anybody out there that, that does that sort of stuff, I'd love to see your art. Um, but I'm, I'm also really thrilled with, with the way that my publisher handled the cover and the, and the typography on the cover is it gorgeous. It is really beautiful. And, it is really yeah. beautiful. I it mean, soars. Is, yes. It, it does. It yes. does. And it, it, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it shows the the bridges between the towers and yes. the, and the 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 hoops and and sinews that c- connect everything together and and uh i mean the whole society is built on on natural on materials and people, very little metal uh-huh, and yep. people surviving in these towers of bone which mm-hmm. grow from below the clouds from what is not revealed in the first book nope and uh they're living there's you know yeah they but they're they alive marrow uh-huh. yeah it's it's a living thing yep and and you can abrade the top of a tower and raise it up higher which is what um the city has learned to do and how it's managed to survive sooner or later they're going to hit the stratosphere yeah they, they're already um realizing some problems because the towers are getting narrower and smaller and and um, they're getting more crowded. So mm-hmm. I think th- this is a, a group of people that doesn't really realize they're living in a scarcity environment because they've been there so long and this is just mm-hmm. kind of how things are. But um, the the metal that they do have has to be passed up mm-hmm. um, from generation to generation and, and salvaged, found down in the low tower if sometimes things get dropped. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's kind of an understatement mm-hmm. but um that sort of thing is what is how they have lived for many generations and it the scarcity of materials versus the growing population is one of the issues that the singers have to address they um, they do yes but yeah. that that's that's edging close to um, topics that are yeah, sort of yeah close yeah. close to a spoiler there so yeah, I'll, I'll step but, al- I'll step away from that ledge. But it is important to note that the singers, um, while the the liner notes make them sound very scary, and they are, they're you know everybody's a little bit terrified of them. They they are trying to do what's right for the city, and mm-hmm. they kind of view themselves like they view the bridges, which is a way to connect the towers and keep them together. And the bridges have a section, second function, which is to support the towers. Um, there is a bit of um, engineering work going on behind the scenes that's not really drummed into the text of the book. But the, mm-hmm. the singers are um, in charge of which towers get bridges between them. And that choice not only gives the towers that are bridged more political advantage and more trading advantage, it also strengthens those towers so that they don't crumble or fall so, because they're connected to all the others. So you mentioned uh, you mentioned that there are uh, 
there is one more book ahead of this, uh, following this one. And the, the, the contract was for three books. Uh huh. And, um, is it too early to tell us the name of the second book? <laughs> I, well, do you think so, that title might change or? Oh, titles. <laughs> titles have um, varying lifespans. <laughs> um, if you, when is this going live? On Sunday? This, this Saturday. Sat- this Saturday. This Saturday. Okay, so if uh, your audience wants to wander by Chuck Wendig's blog on the 1st of September, I, I've i left, I, I draw um, just as sort of a way to help my thought process go. And sometimes I draw cartoons and sometimes I draw sketches and every once in a while I draw an infograph. And one of the infographs that's going up answers the question for once and for all, at least, at least for for the next day or so of how a book gets its title. <laughs> and uh, there's the really easy way, which we all want. And then there's the way that involves, you know, 14 different stops and um, mainlining a, an entire season of Buffy. And yeah, <laughs> 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 guess which way I took. Yeah. Um, so the second book right now is called Cloudbound. Mm-hmm. And if once you've read the first book, that right. will that, have a whole lot of makes, meaning yeah. for you. That yeah, that title makes sense to me. Yikes. And it will to you as the reader after you read Updraft. So but Updraft is um the, the society in as a whole is very um determined to stay above the clouds. They view um up as safe and down as dangerous, and that is one of the main social drivers as well. No, it's um what I what struck me first about the book was that uh, the book really is all about the freedom of flight, and then you have this stark, diametrically opposed contrast of the social structure that makes the flight necessary in the first place. Mm-hmm. And it's it's uh, uh, Kirit is a member of a society that is so controlled and so oppressive. That flight almost doesn't make up for it. Almost. 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 I don't know. Every once in a while when the wind catches my coat, I think, you know, I could I could deal with this. I wouldn't mind it being being up in the air. But I mean, surely you have people in your life that you think, wow, you know, if if you're fine walking on a on a horizontal plane and, and, you know, turning left and right. But man, if you could, if you had all four directions available to you, you'd be a disaster. And mm. this is why we can't have nice things like, <laughs> like flying cars because no, no, I don't. Everybody so. wants them, but nobody thinks out the consequences of that, which is that we would have to have a, a three dimensional driving test. <laughs> yeah, a, a test, which by and large, a lot of people would not be able to pass. No. And because um, and because being ground animals, we're two-dimensional thinkers, <laughs> you know, as I, a rule. Have you ever um, seen or taken a Coast Guard test? No. Okay, because that's it, it is an extra level of complexity because you're dealing with um, tides and wind sometimes as well as operating a motorized vehicle. And you have to deal with right-of-way when there are no lines on the road. So part of that is actually a little bit more similar to what I think would, would mm. be it would be like with flying cars in the air. So many of the laws, as given by the singers, uh, have to do with 
being safe in the air so yep. that so that uh, so that commerce between the towers is possible at all. Yes, There's absolutely. A lot of the early part of the book con- uh, concerns the parallel to a driving test, but it's their their solo flight flight test. Yes, and it's very rigorous. Yep. There and again, it's it's a bit more than just a driving test. It's it's kind of like uh, college final exams too, because you have to show your knowledge of the city and what all the towers do. You have to t- um, display very vividly that you know how to work in a group with others mm-hmm. um, and do group flight and communicate while on the wing with total strangers, as well as um, showing off your own flying skills. And um, showing off your knowledge of the laws, and the uh, the characters in in the uh, in the spire that come from the spire, which is where the singers live. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow! I mean, this is Machiavelli on wings. <laughs> Some of them. There's a couple. Um, CL and Mock. When you make them, they're they're a bit. I don't know. Mock's a bit Machiavellian for an eight year old. <laughs> well, yeah. well, he's learned to get ahead yeah. in that world. He's, he was born to it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you see um, lots of people at different stages of their lives and how they have managed to survive in the city is um, at least in part based on the choices they've made and the consequences they've faced. Mm-hmm. And Kirit at the beginning of the book is about to face some consequences. Now, some pretty serious ones. And, mm-hmm. and for she, she breaks uh, a law that she doesn't really fully understand. Correct. Which is how she gets in trouble in the first place. Yes. Well, she's um, I, the law is fortify, which um, is is basically each tower has to secure itself against danger. And Kirit understands this, but in inside she really feels like, well, if we were in trouble, who would come to help us? And she sees her her mother, Ezeret, is is about to go on this very heroic trading run to go help another set of towers in a different quadrant all the way across the city and to bring them medicine because they're ill. And she wants to do the same thing. She doesn't want to stay out of sight. She wants mm-hmm. to go out and help defend the city, help her fellow citizens and she's very frustrated that she can't Mm -hmm. she also um really wants to be traveling with her mother i I got the feeling uh, from the initial argument that they were having that she was very concerned and she was worried that she might lose her mom um on on this trip in part because there was a migration of skymouths passing through the city at the Mm -hmm. time and of course, helping the city, and what that means is the entire point of the book. So definitely, and also um, hearing and and being heard. I mean, that's the mm-hmm. the initial story that kicked off this entire book was um, the one of the fights in the wind tunnel. It's a winged mm-hmm. knife fight in the wind tunnel. And the two people who are fighting are fighting for the right to be heard by the city. And that has has elements that play out throughout the book as well. well. The fact that there is no freedom of speech, there's freedom of assembly. You you may not be heard by the whole city, and you may not speak. Um, you you can go and challenge to learn the truth about something. Challenging, of course, means fighting for your life. 
but you may not win. And even if you do live, you might not live well enough to be able to learn the truth. On the other hand, if you do win, um, you can find out things that about your, your past or the city's past that can help you. Or might um, not help you a bit. <laughs> <laughs> you might learn so, something that you don't like. Well, um, it's, it's interesting, though, because the, the whole aspect of who people listen to, they, they're very superstitious out in the towers mm-hmm. where Kira oh, gosh, lives. Yeah. Um, in part, that's because these are not the poorest towers by far, but they still live on the edge and risks happen around them every day. Everything from gravity to um, food pro- problems with the food supply to whether messages arrive, things like that. And they, they view this as luck. So they're very superstitious. And when someone is, is determined to be unlucky, they stop listening to that person and sometimes they stop seeing them and stop bringing them up with the rest of the society as the towers rise. So they're, they're pretty harsh in that manner. And other towers are not so harsh in that treatment. So um, there, is a, there is a lot of diverse approaches to social structure throughout the city. There's a, there are um, numerous types of wealth um, based on what the needs are and what the um, desires of various citizens are, trade is very important. Mm-hmm. And and uh, of course, the city. One of the things I like about it is that the city has a history, mm-hmm. and and not all of the towers that it started with are still around. No, nope, and they don't necessarily know how many are missing because they can't see below the clouds. They have. At least one nearby Kirat's Tower, the tower's name is Lith, mm-hmm. that broke um, within recent memory, and it's it's gone black. The, the bone has turned black. The tower is terrifying to people, and nobody wants to be near it. Mm-hmm. And they can see the consequences of not cooperating with the city. The rumor is that, that Lith um, rebelled and then cracked. So everybody's very cautious around it, and everyone that's nearby it sort of gives it a wide berth, except some some of the scavengers. Well, and it's it stands as a warning to the rest of the citizens of the city. You know, you must follow the follow the words of the singers, or yes. or suffer well, dire consequences. Well, did it just break, or was you know, or was it pushed? You know, well, the way these towers grow, most of them is that they um, they have a central core, and when the top of a, a tier is abraded by a scour weed or um, just naturally sort of becomes roughened up, it will grow a new tier. And then as the towers rise, the central core expands out mm-hmm. so that the, the tower gains support through that growth, but you also lose living space as the core expands. So everybody really is kind of pushed to go up with that happening. They have to bring everything that they own, that they, that they want to continue to own up with them. It happens fairly slowly, but there is um, an early scene where Kira's told that her tower still smells of new bone. And it's partially because the tower, the tier where she's living um, has recently been raised um, been allowed to rise by mm-hmm. the singers, and she and her mother have been allowed to move up there from 
pretty close to the bottom of the tower where she was living with um, her mother when her mother wasn't on trading runs and her, her best friend, Nat, and Nat's mother, Elna, who pretty much raised the both of them while, while Ezra was off trading. You've um, got kind of two, two mothers doing the best they can in impoverished conditions because they'd both been deemed unlucky by their tower, uh, including several of Kirit's relatives and cousins. They'd sort of abandoned them. But once they gain this political power to move up the tower, everybody comes back and, and kind of wants a piece of them and wants favors. And it's all very, very friendly and very loving and highly suspicious to Kirit. Uh, yes. And for, good, and for good reasons. <laughs> yes. Um, there is one tower that doesn't grow that way within the city, and that is the spire where the singers live. It, it is um, a much different tower. Instead of having a central core, it has an external wall that operates in much the same way, but it creates a fortress. And the singers, because they live inside of it, have a much different culture. Um, they do take people from the towers to come and join the singers ranks but they have carvings along the outsides of the walls and everything on the inside is decorated with their history and with the city's history mm-hmm. and and then in the middle of it all there's the gyre mm-hmm. well i mean when when i first pictured the city i realized that if you invert a bone core tower what you have in the center is um, a gap or a null value you and if you put wind through that you get a wind tunnel and i thought well i can think of some things to do with that oh yes and a hell mouth <laughs> if you're not lucky mm. how uh how much time did it uh take you to i mean this is not your first novel this is my second novel. This is your second one. What was your first I, one? The first one um, I'm still working on. It is a science fiction novel, and um, it's completely different from this. So uh, I actually um, was challenged. Let me go back. I <laughs> started life as a short story writer. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, started life as a poet. And huh? um, not, was- not the first we've interviewed that started that no. way. <laughs> And I still do some poetry. I have a, a poem that went up on Tor.com for National Poetry Month last this year mm. um, that also has singing in it. Apparently, this is something I like to do to myself. Um, singing in public is not my favorite thing. I like to sing in my car. I like to sing in the shower. I do not like to sing in public, but mm. I keep writing these things that require me to do so. The, the gist is that I went to a writer's workshop um, with a sh- with several short stories that I wanted to work on, I hadn't really managed to finish much in the way of short stories. I was I was always starting things and never never finishing them, and I really um, wanted to get myself to a point where I was I was dedicated enough to finish the stories instead of constantly starting new ones. And I finished a story um, that was a science fiction story about various science fiction-y things and took it to this writing workshop. Uh And when I got there, I was told, this is a great short story, but it's a better novel. 
And this is not something a short story writer ever wants to hear. Um, <laughs> a, because it's a lot more work. And B, you, I have a tendency to cram an entire world, a new world into a, into a 5,000 words anyway. And to unpack all that is really quite freeing. But at the time I thought, oh gosh, I can't possibly write a novel. And I think my face showed that because the next thing this person said to me was, and you're going to write that novel in 90 days. <laughs> wow. Ah, yes. That's worse than NaNoWriMo. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it was really quite good because the, the one thing I love more than bread or water or wine or song is a deadline. Mm. And if you put a deadline in front of me, I will run to make it. And I did. I wrote that novel in 90 days. It wasn't a perfect novel, but it had an arc and it was finished. And as I sent it to the person who had dared me to do this. And as I was waiting to hear back, I started work on another short story that I had written um while I was at this writing workshop, we had a challenge to write about mega cities for mm. um, something. And I had written because I had been talking with another author, Stephen Bruce, about Milton. I was a Milton scholar in college. Um, we'd been talking about um, Terrain in Hell, which is Stephen's book about Paradise Lost or mm -hmm. Stephen's retelling of Paradise Lost. And so I wrote a fall from Great Heights story set in a city of living bone. And because I was feeling puckish at the time, the two characters were named John, D-J-O-N-N, -N, and, you guessed it, Milton. And <laughs> they uh, they flew, they they dropped from the city on, on wings of silk and bone. And, and a lot of the elements were there. And I thought, well, I want to try playing with this. And I really liked the world as involved with the two characters yet they they have reappeared in sh in short stories mm -hmm. at least john has and then i started picturing other towers and other places within the city and i wrote this short story about the knife fight in the wind tunnel and when i did that and i showed it to some people um my beta reader said well this is great too but this is much bigger i think than than what you've been toying with and this is also a novel and <laughs> have i mentioned that that's not what you want to hear when you're trying to write a 5000 word short story uh -huh. um but it ended up um i wrote that first draft of the novel very quickly i wrote it in 6 weeks and wow. um, then I rewrote it. I, I had to mm -hmm. chop half of it off and, and redo it because the second half was bad. But the first half is is pretty close to what you see with some added elements. And then um, the second half, when I finally figured out what was going on, it was like magic. Everything just flowed. And eventually the characters kind of took over and pitched my plot out the window and went with their own. And they were pretty smart about it. I, I like what they did and I think I'll keep them. <laughs> <laughs> She's a rebel. Yeah. Well, Kirit is a known plot destroyer. Um, <laughs> she's she's done it more than once. But uh -huh. I'm also I'm just thrilled that I wrote a character that has enough agency to turn around and tell her author, you know, where to get off. And that to me means that she's real. Well, so, in Aristotle's Poetics, which is one of the textbooks they give you at uh, in UCLA Film School when you're uh, giving being given your introduction <laughs> to screenwriting, uh, uh, Aristotle says that, uh, characters grow from the story as much as the story grows from the characters. Yes. It's a circular dependence. And he goes yes. out of his way to point this out. So this is, 
certainly not a new idea. No. You know. um, and and one of my favorite scenes is absolutely where I was, you know, pointing right in one direction and, and all of the characters, Nat and Kirit and several of the others said, oh, no, we're not doing that. And they got they got it totally right. Uh-huh. Characters have, have a lot of ways of telling you that, that they're, they think your plot is junk. Um, one is that they talk back. Um, and I've talked about that a lot on my blog and other places. They'll, you'll just you'll just start seeing lines appear in the dialogue, like "this is really stupid" and "I'm really bored" and things like that. Um, and and you can go back and get those in editing. But if you listen to them, you'll realize that they're talking not about their situation. They're they're kind of talking to you, <laughs> and it gives you uh-huh. a, a pretty good chance to fix things mm-hmm. before you send it off to your editor. Well, yeah, I mean, if if the if your characters are, it, it's like, um, if you're bored, if, your readers are going to be bored. And if your characters are bored, you're bored. Oh, oh yeah. Well, it's, it's like, um, uh, uh, in adventure games, you know, when you walk away from the keyboard for a while and you're, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, if you, you know, in a really well detailed game, if you leave your avatar alone long enough, your avatar will like, Wander off. Wander off. Uh, well, he'll sit down. He'll like, take out a nail file. He'll check his wristwatch, waiting for you to make a move. You yeah. know, and it's the same sort of same sort of get idea. nudged over a cliff by <laughs> another character. It uh-huh. could happen. It can happen. Yeah. So, um, let's see. Where else? You must have thought you draw. So you must have thought about. Uh, I mean, one of the things that I enjoyed about the book was the detail of uh, in the in the costuming and what the people wore and and, yes. and why they wore it. Yes, you'll know you've made it when you see, start seeing you know carrot cosplay. Oh around, gosh, you know? I I there's I, enough detail in the book where you know people will be able to build this stuff from the descriptions you wrote. I can't tell you. How I'm going to feel, I, I think it's going to be a mixture of amazement and shock and awe. Um, if that ever happens, it would be delightful and wonderful. Um, it's seeing, seeing wings out there would be great. Um, but seeing the, the, the silk robes and all of the layers that they use and the glass beads, um, that get, because different towers mm-hmm. wear different things. Some people wear their tower markers in their hair and others wear mm-hmm. them on their, on the robes and some wear them as necklaces. Um, there's a lot of various hair braiding that, that is distinguishable of, of each tower. And then there are both the wing markers that show that you've passed your various tests and, and you're free to fly the city. And then the laws markers as well, which are a bit heavier and um, not as nice to wear because if you wear too many of them or if you've got a big laws marker, it makes mm-hmm. it difficult to fly. Yep. Uh-huh. I think I got, I got that. I got all of these for sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> My dog not actually a law in the city sarcasm Thank is goodness I'd be dead. <laughs> so yeah so um about the wings i they are not uh are they attached to a central uh a, um, a central spine or are they there's something that uh they're they're separate and move more like the wings of a bird, or how do they? In your they mind, how do they work? Are, um, they strap on and they furl. They're one package, 
Um, They are composed of bone, which is very obviously very available in the towers and silk. Um, They're, they're a bit like sails or foils and sort of a close relative of both Da Vinci wings and the sleeker wingsuits that wingsuit flyers have today. Mm-hmm. Um, but a little bit of both of those, they, they look like kites from above almost, but they, when they um, are furled, they snap closed and can sit on your back um, pretty comfortably. They have, um, a wing skirt, like a wing skirt that you can step in because it's important to have your legs level with your head while you're flying. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a lot of research on man-made wings and most of the early designs failed. And there are all these little notes from the 11th and 12th century of, and then he plummeted 200 feet and broke both legs because he had failed to allow for a tail. And they kept mm. doing this for some time until somebody figured out the tail commonality. And, and all of a sudden you have a couple of different designs that show people flying um, use in a plank instead mm-hmm. of sort of dragging their feet behind them. And so the, this, um, when you, when you leap from a tower, the wings lift and they lift, they, the skirt kicks in and lifts your feet with them, mm-hmm. which is probably something that would be difficult to cosplay unless you had somebody to carry you around on a hook. But <laughs> I think that the rest of it would, um, would be cool. The, the finger grips and the, and the manipulators there are what is used to curl the wings in the wind to allow for turning. Mm-hmm. Um, you can pull your hands out of the finger grips and lock your wings if you are going to fight so that you can use a bow or a knife. Mm-hmm. Which comes into play quite frequently. It's, uh, it does. Um, and some of the wingsuit, some wingsuit, some of the wing flyers, um, who are usually guards or hunters, but the towers compete a little bit. They have, there, there is gambling that goes on in this establishment quite frequently. Um, they have, uh, wing fights between towers, which is, um, where teams of flyers with their li- their wings lined with glass broken shards mm-hmm. of glass try and knock each other into a net and score points that way and it's it's a fairly bloody game yeah but not not as bloody as what the the singers do no no the singers are playing for real and for keeps um and when you have a bottomless um wind tunnel that is fed by um mysterious means through um just the the type of um vents that you would find in a in a pipe organ basically you can engineer some pretty extreme wing fighting um they and and if you fall you're gone but even singers like to up the stakes of the game and so if if some of the singers the who there are singers in the lower towers of the spire who can control the winds they have giant wings they're called wind beaters and mm-hmm. they control the wind um by by using these giant wings to stir the wind when they get bored they will um make up something called rot gas and throw it burning that's, and that's it will horrible. go up into the into the gyre and mix with all of the other things in there and well, bored so or, bored you don't tired. want them to get bored yeah well the rot gas is is uh as i understood it was as much to create you know just uh, uh an another obstacle for well, the trainees an updraft without having to you know without having to uh uh have that wind being created by 
you know, by other means. That, there that is some of that. Energy. It does add a, le- a level of technical flying difficulty when you've got um, when you've got fire in the air, but also the fire is adjusting the airflow. Yeah. So, um, oh gosh, gotta I wonder mean, if there's volcanic activity causing this. Um, you know, a giant's flatulence for them, or <laughs> where that's coming from. But I suppose that will come to us in time, won't it? What's interesting is that when you get close to um, towers that are very high up in the atmosphere, there is actually a natural updraft that's created by um, steep mountains and um, skyscrapers. That, that as you as you go close to them, they do change the wind patterns considerably. Mm. So, um, I I was talking with uh, a number of different people in involved in wind research and weather research for the, especially for the, the past two books. So I wanted to get the clouds right and I wanted to get the wind right because it's, it's just really important to have the setting be as believable and, and have the ground be as firm under my reader's feet as possible when they're right up in the air. Um, so I was, I was studying wind patterns and, and when I learned that, I was delighted because that's exactly what I needed. But there is, there is some other sources of, of wind as well. It's, it's pretty um it's pretty noisy up there. I think if the wind were ever to stop everybody would probably have an existential crisis because that's the one major constant in their lives. Oh yes. Well, it's it's um one of the one of the hallmarks of a really good book is that there's so much more world uh that is present that you don't see yep. that provides the foundation for everything that's actually in the book. And uh, there were a great many unanswered questions, um, you know, having to do with the nature of the world in which they live. And I'm looking forward to reading the next two books yes. because I have a feeling that you're going to be exploring some of those. They're um, definitely in cloudbound. The, the clouds will come into play. Um, but also there are several short stories out there already. I, I, I'm pretty constantly writing short stories with different characters in them mm-hmm. to try and figure out the, the characterizations and what really matters to this character or that character. Um, and so as of now, two of those stories have been published. Um, one was reprinted last year in the Resurrection House anthology called 13, and that is a YA story. Um, called a moment of gravity circumscribed, and that is mm-hmm. that is absolutely a YA story. The characters are, are um, younger, and the theme is is much different. But the towers are there, absolutely. And then one that is coming out in Beneath Ceaseless Skies on September third, um, free online, is called Bent the Wing, Dark the Cloud, and it is set a while before updraft starts actually and it's two of the side characters that um are actually doing pretty well for themselves by the time updraft comes along but not so well um at least one of them is not doing very well uh in in the story bent the wing dark the cloud that's coming out from bcs so you can read that for free and get a feel for the world if you want and i have a feeling that bcs is going to do a contest of some sort mm. but i can't promise we have been speaking with Fran Wild, author of Updraft from uh, TorForge.com, Tor, uh, Tor Press. This is a hardcover book. Yes. Uh, and it is coming out September 1st. 
And have you seen the, have you seen the final, the final cover? Cause they did something. They didn't even tell me they were going to do. If the lettering's raised, you can, it's really tactile. It is. Yes. Yes, we do have, we, I, I'm holding a copy right of it in my hand <laughs> that your, uh, your publicist sent us a copy oh. of it. It's too bad I didn't know you were at Sasquatch. Otherwise I would have signed it for you. I know. Well, next time. Yes. Yes. Kansas City. Okay. Kansas City. Yes. Yeah, we'll be there. Okay, we're, we're planning excellent. on being there. We're we're hoping to uh, we're hoping to present at that one. Uh, oh, fantastic! Um, we have this space opera called Halfway Home: Adventures in the Asteroid Belt. Aha! Uh-huh. And uh, we should have something to show people by then. Yeah, we should have something to something interesting to show. Now, are these uh, human characters? Are there other types of characters that mostly human? Mostly okay. human, but there are aliens, and in in the. In, some more human in, than in halfway others. home. Well, some more human than others, first of all, because uh, you know, after a few generations in the asteroid belt, uh, you know, they can't exactly repatriate. <laughs> uh, but there, there are also aliens, and the aliens that we have are very alien. They're not just humans with different shapes of head bumps, you know, like you see on Star Trek. But they're oh, very, have you very read, alien. Uh, Pat Cadigan's short story, "The Girl Thing Who Went Out for Sushi." No, I've seen the oh. title. I haven't. I haven't read it yet. It's it's about title. body modification for workers in the asteroid belt. We better look at oh, that. Gotta yeah, read that. It's great. Anyway, friend Wild, thank you for joining us on this evening's episode of the Event Horizon. Oh, sure. Uh, it has been a real pleasure, and we hope to we'll see you in in Kansas City <laughs> next year. Yeah. And, and we're looking I hope forward to, to come to back and talk about Cloudbound. But oh, absolutely, looking forward yeah, to what your uh, what your listeners think about Updraft. Absolutely. Well, we'll um, we uh, I think we're going to be running a little contest oh. to see if we can uh, you know to give this copy away uh, to. Um, a uh, to a listener who might be interested in reading this book, and who might and be sending us money. No, <laughs> chocolate. No, and we're we're probably announced that in the where next, are those lost next markers? Week or, uh, when uh, around uh, <laughs> around September when the book comes out, we'll we'll probably run the little contest, you know, to help promote the book. Okay. So that's fantastic. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. It was you're such a charming interviewer. I'm <laughs> charming interviewee. Yeah, you you've got a voice for radio definitely. Oh, wow. I got the looks for radio. <laughs> Well, I think I was helped on on a little bit with the radio voice by all the smoke in Spokane. Oh Oh, my god. Spokane. Spokane. Yeah, I felt the first world science fiction convention ever to be held in the midst of a national disaster. Yeah, it it was. um, And that is not an exaggeration. We could leave those, you know, the people who live there. That that's what they were dealing with for a while, and I and I Mm -hmm. feel pretty bad for them. Hmm. On the other hand, as as I walked through the the smoke and eventually gave up and took a cab because it was really hard to to walk to where the restaurant that I was going to was. Mm -hmm. Um, The cab driver informed me that there was an armed standoff going on around the corner. Just some guy that, you know, was, was kind of losing it. And so I walked into the restaurant where I was meeting my friends late and they said, what kept you? And I said, the apocalypse. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Well, uh, 
Uh, this show will air uh, this coming Saturday, and uh, and we'll cut it somewhere. Yeah, we'll cut after. it somewhere back <laughs> a couple of minutes ago. I don't know. Okay. Now you guys are, um, you guys are, where are you near? Are you near San Francisco or no, San Diego? No, we're in Los Angeles. Oh, you're in Los Angeles. Oh, nuts. Cause I am coming to Borderlands and Writers with Drinks, um, mm, mm-hmm. on the 12th and 15th. And okay. then I'll be at Mysterious Galaxy in San Diego with Greg Van Eckhout, uh-huh. um, on the 19th. Excellent. And, yeah. and uh, people can buy the book and get it signed by what may be a Hugo winner for next year for Best Novel. Oh, you are very kind. It is. It is as likely as anything, and it's in the. It's in the. It's, it's in the running. Yeah, it's certainly certainly wow. in the certainly at the quality bar that I would expect to see if for for a, a Hugo winner. So. Anyway, well, put your money where your mouth is, Bucko. Yeah, vote. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm going to vote this time. I'm going to do a lot more reading this year. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Me too. Well, I'm going to. probably the one that won this year pleased me. I, yeah. I liked that book. I think that the nominees for novel this year were were great. Yeah. Um, I I really enjoyed the Goblin Emperor very much. Mm. I loved the Three Body Problem. Um, I I loved the the Ancillary series. This is is just wonderful. There there were so many options, um, and I know I'm missing one. What am I missing? Oh gosh, now I'm busted. <laughs> Don't worry about it. This isn't going it. out. Yeah, this part of the interview is just out. gossip. Yep. So. Okay. Yeah, we the interview technically ended uh, a little. Uh, what when I'm going to do is I'm going to take that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm also going to splice in the part where you said where you're going to be. Okay. You know, so that okay, definitely. Yeah, Miss. Yeah, with the demise of all the science fiction focused um, bookstores in L.A., a Mysterious Galaxy is pretty much where it's at. Yeah, that's that's the closest big sci-fi store science fiction fact, store I, magnet. I'm, I may but find a way to within 250 it. miles. I may find a way to send Jean down there, actually, and we can discuss okay. that later. Ooh, that'll be fun. Oh well, okay. So, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I have a lot of friends who are makers and who are cosplayers, and mm-hmm. um, I, you promised me that the radio's off. Yes, turn the recorder off. Turn, yeah. You have just heard episode 112 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for August 29th, 2015. Our guest has been Fran Wilde, the author of the new fantasy novel Updraft, available starting September 1st, 2015 from Tor Books. Your hosts have been Gene Turnbow and Susan L. Fox. This episode will air again on August 30th, 2015 at 4 p.m. Pacific and at various additional times throughout the coming week. See the Krypton Radio website for showtimes in your area. Once all the airtimes have passed, you'll find this episode and others as downloads on kryptonradio.com and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. If you are an author or other creator and would like to be on the show, please contact our production manager, Kat Carter, at katcarter at kryptonradio.com. If you would like to become a patron of the Geeky Arts, and we strongly suggest that you, you can do so for as little as $1 a month. Visit patreon.com slash kryptonradio to join the Krypton Radio family of patrons. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by Mark Schirmeister. The engineer was played by Christian Dean McGuire. The navigator was Christian Cherry. And the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents, except where provided by others, are copyright 2015 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>